Hello, and welcome to the Innovate IPM podcast, where we are passionate about the future of the industrial projects professions, presenting you the best of project management, people, and practices, combining the wisdom of time-tested methods with the cutting-edge technologies and advancements that are modernizing our craft. Our mission is to contribute to the growth and progress of the industrial project management community. It's time to talk scope, schedule, and budget. Let's start the show. Hey, everybody. It's Rob Williams, host of the Innovate IPM podcast. Glad you're here with me today. Uh, This is episode five. It was an absolute honor to have the founder and president of Independent Project Analysis, also known as IPA, Mr. Ed Merrow, on the show. Ed really needs no introduction. If you've been in the business for any length of time, uh, and especially if you're in cost or you deal with the front-end loading process, then you've probably dealt with IPA at some point, or at least some results of the work that they do. He is the author of the book, Industrial Mega Mega Projects, uh, and more recently, Leading Complex Projects. I need to pick that one up. 35 plus years of studying mega projects at IPA and the RAND Corporation. And he's been the keynote speaker at events around the world, such as the Offshore Technology Conference that's here in Houston, uh, the CURT National Conference at CURT, the European Construction Industries Annual Conference, and many, many others. He's testified before the United States Congress about major project cost overruns, and I bet there was a lot to talk about there. It's pretty impressive. I could go on for a long, long while here. Um, you can go to the website, and, and you can read his full bio, uh, but, uh, but uh, you know, just, just touching on a few things. Extremely smart guy with degrees from both Dartmouth and Princeton. He's contributed an awful lot to the way that projects are executed around the world. So his consultancy, IPA, has analyzed more than 20,000 projects since its founding in 1987, worth a total value of more than $5 trillion. The projects that they've analyzed, not IPA. That's trillion with a TR. Long story short, Ed has seen a thing or two that the project management community can learn from. There are a lot of parts of this conversation that I love to discuss. It's very difficult to pick out one or two or three as my favorites. We talk about FEL as a creative process, how to keep project sponsors engaged, leadership versus management, the consequences of speed and fast tracking, one of my favorite subjects, how well we are doing as a projects community now versus 35 years ago. Very interesting. And what we have to do now to keep getting better in the future, which is my pet topic. It was quite an inspiration for me, and I hope it is for you too. Before we get to our interview with Ed, just a couple of notes. If you want to stay connected with Innovate IPM, you can find us on LinkedIn, uh, Facebook, if you're into Facebook, and Instagram. Believe it or not, I found that there's a rather large project management community on Instagram. In fact, uh, me and Matt Devitt, the last guy that uh, was on the podcast, actually met through Instagram. So 
uh, don't don't discount it. You might you might find out you like it, and if you like it, you can find us on there. So, Innovate IPM, just look for us. Also, and probably most importantly, you can visit us at www.innovateipm.com and sign up for the email list. If you're on the email list, you will get notifications of when there's new blog posts, um, when there is new podcasts, and any other things that we as Innovate IPM have going on. And we have a lot going on. Um, if you like what we're doing at Innovate IPM, please consider supporting us at www.patreon.com backslash innovateipm.com. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And we appreciate your support. Now, let's get to talking with Ed. Enjoy. How would you explain FEL development being the most critical risk factor? Well, the, the way I describe it is that project management should be thought of as the, the science of planning combined with the art of reacting to surprise. The, the problem we have for most, for too many projects is that because we don't do the upfront planning part really thoroughly, we end up with more surprises than we can, than we can cope with. I mean, the, the ability to apply the art of reacting to surprises is inherently limited, which is to say there are only so many surprises that we can cope with. So you've got to do, front and loading is nothing more than being clear about objectives, having a solid team that reflects all of the competencies that the owner needs to be reflected in the project on the team and then preparing the project. Mm -hmm. And as a community, I don't think we have entirely learned how to complete that, that front end loading process but it's a whole lot better than it used to be. I have some of some of our roughly 150 clients are really, really good at it at this point. Some think they're good at it, but aren't as good as they think they are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those who are really good at it, what is it that they're doing differently? Well, a couple of things. First, um, they really do stop projects that don't have clear objectives. And this whole issue of clear objectives, clear objectives is a lot harder than it sounds. I mean, it sounds almost trivial. I mean, it sounds like a, a motherhood thing to say that objective, that projects should all have clear objectives. But the simple fact of the matter is generating a clear and coherent set of objectives is a lot harder than people imagine that it is, especially for big complex projects. But it, it can even be difficult for relatively small projects. So a project, uh, for example, that's being done inside a turnaround. Well, tell me what's more important, maintaining the turnaround schedule 
or extending the, the turnaround schedule in order to be able to do the project correctly. In other words, that we may need to, to balance that. So it's not, as, it's not obvious when you look at project how to create clear objectives. Mm-hmm. Some companies are really good at that. So they have really, they, they work between the project's organization, the manufacturing organization, and the businesses to create projects with clear objectives. And the second thing they do is they're willing to put the right people on the project teams. But re- remember, people do front end loading, not work process. Now, some companies um, have come to the mistaken conclusion that if I've got a good work process, then it'll take care of itself. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, front end loading is not a mechanical process. Front end loading is a creative process, and it absolutely is dependent on the quality of the team. Bad teams can't do good front end loading. But the trouble is, that bad teams can appear to do good front end loading. Mm. And that then we end up with false positives, things that that look on the surface a lot better than they really are uh, when you look underneath the covers. Does that answer your question? It definitely answers the question. And, uh, and it brings up a couple of, of really interesting points. And, and the first one I want to sort of unpack is, is the clear objectives point. I, I think this is something that, um, that we probably see, but don't know how to put into words. Oftentimes, one of the things that, uh, you know, my, my trade is, is cost estimating. And, and I live entirely in the FEL world. I don't get into construction uh, execution or control estimates. Um, uh-huh. One of the comments that I often make to project managers who are utilizing uh, me or my team services is that we're, we're being paid to provide you with a cost estimate that for the solution to your problem, not necessarily for all the documents that you've handed us. If, if you give me a, a tank and a pump and a, and a pipe and a, and, you know, a terminal somewhere and you say, here, I need an estimate for this thing, but it doesn't solve your problem, then the cost means nothing. I, I'll, never, I'll never forget. Early in my career, I asked a senior cost estimator at, at a good company. I said, you know, how, how do you decide how much contingency to put in your cost estimate. And he said, son, it's simply a function of how much of the design I had to make up. (laughs) I I think that's what you're talking about. When you have to to make up. (laughs) They gave you the tank, they gave you the pump, they, they gave you some pipe, but they didn't really tell you what it is that they're doing, then you have to make up the rest. Mm-hmm. That's that's tough for an estimator. We do it all the time. Sure. Okay. Sure. But it isn't really our job. Sure. Yeah, it's uh it's it's kind of wild sometimes the amount of uh gaps in information we're expected to fill. Um the other the other comment you made uh and this is 
this may be pretty profound to a lot of people that FEL is not a process, but it's a, uh, it's not a mechanical process. Rather, it's a creative process. Uh, I really, and I think really like that. It's horribly important to understand that. It, it really is. The, the, the work process should be simply a tool that makes things easier for the project team. It helps it helps you basically not forget things. It helps you get things in the right order. But the fact is, this is still a creative process because you are taking what is nothing more than a set of ideas at, as we start FEL2, as we start scope development, you're taking a set of ideas and turning it into a real project. Mm-hmm. That's not a mechanical process. Mm-hmm. If it was, frankly, we wouldn't need project people at all. I mean, we'd simply, I mean, a mechanical process, a machine can do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Don't look for, don't look for a machine to do FEL anytime soon. Very true. Yeah, and I think uh, I think there's a lot of people who may be thinking that that a machine is ready to go for FEL, and I, I'm I'm with you 100. It's a it's a, it's a human process, and it takes the creativity of humans to to get it to uh, something usable. That's right, and it takes also the the creativity of humans to screw it up. Um, so it it really can't be done by a machine, mm-hmm. and. As soon as we imagine that it's a mechanical process, we then go through the motions but don't really do the work. And and I see too much of that. I mean, if I had to say there's one thing that probably bothers me more than anything else about the current state of project management, I worry that the young people will be taught that this is a simple mechanical process and I need to go through the steps. No, mm-hmm. this is a thought process. It's a cooperative process. It's one where I've got to solicit a lot of people's input and I've got to listen and listen genuinely if I'm going to be successful. It's not mechanical. What do you think are some of the common misconceptions that people have about FEL? I mean, this kind of this kind of lines up with that last statement you made? Well, there, there are a number of them. Um, one is, I think there's a, the belief that FEL2 can be scheduled the way project execution can. It's really hard to do that because FEL2, with scope development, depends on a lot of inputs that come along during the process that may not be exactly what you you expected. It may be that operations really doesn't buy in to the way that the project had had planned to do the work. Uh, It may be that uh, that turnaround leader doesn't buy in. It may be that the business doesn't buy in. There can be all sorts of reasons. So FEL2 is really hard to schedule. FEL3 should be much more predictable if we don't carry any options into FEL3. In other words, FEL2 is the time when I get rid of all my options. Mm -hmm. I come down to what we're actually going to do. 
if I do that well, then in on average, I don't get cost growth between the end of FEL2 and the end of FEL3. I would say of all the things that drives businesses crazy, and I'm pretty sympathetic to their concern here, is when you tell me it's going to cost $50 million at the end of FEL2, and it's $75 million at the end of FEL3. Because mm-hmm. you see, at $50 million, I had a pretty good business case. At $75 million, I'm not sure that I do. Sure. So it, 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 that drives the businesses crazy. The businesses frequently have a role in driving themselves crazy, which is that's when they tell us to hurry up with FEL2. So got to get in, got to get into feed. Well, not till we know what we're doing, we don't. Mm-hmm. Because feed is a, FEL3 is a different kind of activity. We move from a creative process to a process that is now massively parallel. We're doing a bunch of things at the same time together to try and pull this design together so that we can execute one time through. Mm-hmm. Different kind of different kind of activity. Um, people who imagine that FEL2 and FEL3 are really just kind of continuation of the same thing really aren't thinking about it properly. FEL2 is a very different kind of activity. FEL3 has one foot in execution and one foot in planning. It really is our bridge. And probably the biggest problem that we have with FEL2 FEL today is that we are not doing enough of completing feet. Mm-hmm. So many projects, we're supposed to, at the end of FEL3, we're supposed to have completed, reviewed, has-opt PNIDs for the whole project, not just for the ISBL portion, for the whole project. We mm-hmm. frequently don't. If we're really good, Okay, if we really would would do what we're supposed to, we would have design packaged into engineering work packages and properly sequenced with input from construction. Then we'd have really complete front end loading. The fact of the matter is, mm, most of the time on big projects in particular, we don't even finish the PNIDs. Sure. Then, because we haven't, now we say we did HAZOPs, and I always wonder, how exactly did we do HAZOP on, on no P&IDs? I mean, that must have been an exercise, right? <laughs> and then, of course, we get to about, oh, 60% detailed design complete, and we start generating changes and changes and changes and more changes because we didn't really complete front end. Mm-hmm. Engineering slips and slips routinely. The reason that it does is primarily because we hadn't really finished the FEL3 w- work 
when we started execution. So in effect, we started four months behind. And I always tell people when you hear that 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 expression catch up, okay, think mm-hmm. about a red sauce. Don't think about catching up. <laughs> very true. Very true. How how much can we attribute all of that which you described to fast tracking? Oh, fast tracking. Uh, look, this, this is a, a absolutely key subject in capital projects because the businesses, of course, would prefer that a project were done earlier rather than later. Always. I mean, the economics always look a little better when it's faster. I mean, after all, the perfect project is the one that would be done yesterday, right? Mm-hmm. The problem is that speed has consequences. If those consequences are really lined out in detail, we as a business may not want that speed at all. So if the effect of speed, for example, is I get a month, but I spend 15% more, did I really want that? Or I get that month or two or three, but the facility doesn't work very well because corners were cut to get it done on time. Or when I, when I, when I try to fast track, what do I fast track? Fast track front of loading. I don't try. See, execution depends on the work of other people. Execution depends on how quickly the vendors can get that equipment uh, actually ready for me to uh, install. It depends on the contractors. It depends on all the things that are only somewhat under my control. But you see, front and loading looks like it's completely under my control. So I will try to, quote, save time by doing less front and loading. That's why so many fast track projects end up actually taking longer than they would have had they been done properly. So actually, I I ended up spending money to get nothing. Now, a lot depends on the nature of the business. If I'm in a consumer products business, it makes a huge amount of sense to try and be very fast. I may even even forfeit some functionality for speed. But if I'm in a commodity business, fuels, for example, a non-random example, it makes very little sense to run fast-track projects mm-hmm. because the economic value of time is much less for those projects than the value of capital. So what usually happens with, you know, the reason we get fast-track projects is one of two possibilities. It's ignorance or it's bad governance. It's ignorance when the business really doesn't understand the consequences of trying to do things faster than they can be done. 
Mm-hmm. That's ignorance. And by the way, ignorance, because uh, business people tend to be quite smart, ignorance can be fixed. The more troublesome problem is that it reflects a lack of governance. Mm-hmm. See, oftentimes fast tracking is just another name for getting my capital quickly. Or as we sometimes call it, the dash for cash. So if I run faster and if I need early commitments of money, I can get my capital project up and and started before you get your money because capital is always scarce. The trouble with that is that's a corporate governance problem. That means that the governing structures that are supposed to prevent people from cheating are not working. And sometimes they really don't work at all because corporate doesn't understand that a corporate responsibility is to govern the playing field, mm-hmm. to make sure that every project is evaluated on the same set of criteria and with the same quality of preparation. If it's any other way, then whoever lies fastest and lies best wins. Mm -hmm. And everybody who actually does their work loses. And of course, what happens is the shareholders end up losing. Well, protection of the shareholders is the corporation's responsibility. Mm -hmm. The businesses, of course, want things fast. They want to get their projects going fast. They want to get their capital fast. We we all understand that. That doesn't mean that the corporation ought to always allow it. Hmm. Well, I think we could do a whole episode probably just on corporate governance. You got my wheels turning over here. Well, corporate governance is is really critical to effective projects. I I always try to remember, uh, I I just remind people that the project organization and the gated work system have to be protected by corporate. Mm -hmm. It will never be protected by the businesses. It's always got to be protected by corporate. If corporate doesn't do it, it's not going to happen. And I'd remind the businesses, this gated process stuff, you think it's for engineers. You're wrong. The gated process is for businesses to make good decisions. Mm, Totally agree. We engineers would like nothing better. Just give us a bunch of money and we'll do some nifty stuff with it. I mean, it may not be what you want, but I assure you it will be fun. So. Give us a couple hundred million. Give us a billion. You know, we'll do some some really good things. Not good for the business, but, but fun. If sure. you want good projects, you have to make good decisions. The only way to make good decisions is to have good decision points. And that's what the gated process is all about. It's about decision points. It's about making the right decisions at the right time. Now, you know, one of the things that this brings up is, you know, how do you keep how do you keep your business sponsor involved in a project? 
Yes. Freedom decisions to make. That's how you do it. Make them make decisions. Now, you don't want them making technical decisions about, well, we want to buy from this particular vendor rather than that one, but make business decisions. Make, help mediate between project and manufacturing over how much convenience are we going to build into the design and at what cost. Those are the kinds of things that they that, that the business needs to be involved in. And the only way to keep them involved is to make them make decisions. And there's a lot we could talk about. Uh, I've got a ton of questions and, and every question seems to bring more questions. I know we're a little little limited on time. Would you like to would you like to talk about uh, your books? That was kind of the thing I was hoping to talk about before before we ended the interview. Well, um, I've uh, written a couple of books in the last few years that um, actually have been quite fun to write. Uh, the first one was Industrial Mega Projects, mm-hmm. and um, you know some of the things that we do with with projects are are uh, you know they're kind of humorous in, in their own strange way. Mega projects have a tough go. The good thing about it is that, well, the way I put it is this: with when it comes to mega projects, there's good news and there's bad news. First, the bad news: about two thirds of them fail. Mm-hmm. Now, the good news: <laughs> it's our own fault. <laughs> that is good news. And if you think about it, of course, that really is good news. Yep. In other words, we it's the owner's fault that they fail. It's not somebody else's. That means that we can fix it. So that that, that book was great fun to write. I enjoyed it thoroughly. Um, last year's book was called uh, Leading Complex Projects. And it was really uh, a book that was that was driven by a question that industrial mega projects posed but couldn't answer. Why is it that we know what to do? We know that we're supposed to do the front end loading, for example, really well, and that we know it's terribly important on big projects, but we don't do it. And to try to answer that question, we started to look at the nature of the project managers on those projects. And one of the things that we realized very quickly is the successful project managers on mega projects weren't project managers at all. They were leaders. They were people who had a set of skills that could get other people to follow and cooperate. Because on mega projects, and it's true on projects regardless of size, but on mega projects in particular, our biggest problem is to get all these many players to actually cooperate with us. That's what effective leaders do. They generate cooperation. What they don't do is project management. That's left to others to do on those projects. And the project directors on the mega projects who failed didn't understand that difference. Mm -hmm. They thought of themselves as great big 
project managers when actually their job was leadership and not management at all. Mm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Anyway, that book was also fun. And next year's book is contracting. Contracting. It, it's what keeps everybody up at night. I wanted to really say one, one other thing. Yes, sir. We as a projects community do projects much better than we did 25 or 30 years ago. We really do. And we're getting better, I think, all the time. Not everybody's getting better at the same rate. You have to be persistent. You have to keep the faith. But in fact, we are a much better projects community today than we were a generation ago. It's now time for us to get the young people on board to be sure that they're that they have the wherewithal to do the projects well going into the future. Excellent. Yeah, I can't agree more. Um, what do you think the number one way is that we can uh, we can build uh, uh, what well, we can make that better for those young people? Well, I mean, listen, let's encourage more networking, more informal networks, not only networks within the company, uh, but across companies. Let's go beyond the professional societies to use today's media to create really vibrant communities of practice. I think we can do that. I don't think we've perfectly figured out how to do it, but I think we can. And I think, remember, the kids are really comfortable with social media. Sure. So I think they can make it work. And I think we should do everything possible to support them. I agree a hundred percent. And that's, uh, that's one of the reasons I started this podcast was to, to get, uh, get as much information out there, create this sort of virtual community of practice. And, and I hope that, uh, I hope that as, as we develop, uh, we can, we can hit those, those kinds of objectives. Thank you very much for being on Ed. I appreciate it. We, hopefully we can do this again in the future. We certainly have a lot that we could, uh, drill down into. In, in all of these points. And, and I certainly had a lot we could have talked about uh, uh, in my, my list of questions here we didn't get to touch on. So I hope it was good for you and uh, looking forward to keeping, uh, keeping this conversation going. Thank you, Robin, and I enjoyed the conversation. Well, that was episode five with Mr. Ed Marrow of IPA. Hope you enjoyed it. Be sure and check our show notes at innovateipm.com or iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, whatever your preferred podcast platform is. Uh, there you're going to find resources and links to things that were discussed here in the episode. This is Rob Williams, Innovate IPM podcast. Be sure and go to your preferred platform and give us a like, give us a rating, and give us a comment. Tell us what you think about it. And uh, also be sure to share with your professional community. Thanks a lot. We'll see you in episode six.